You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. So Acts chapter 18 ended with Paul having begun his third missionary journey, but without Paul getting to the major city that he would go to in his third missionary journey, the city of Ephesus. No, instead, Luke, at the end of chapter 18, prepared us as the readers for the moment when Paul would go to Ephesus by explaining to us about a man who had been in Ephesus prior to Paul. Apollos had been a disciple of John the Baptist's teaching and ministry, and he'd heard of Jesus, but he had not yet heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and was not able to preach an entire or complete gospel message. So even though what he said about Jesus was accurate, it was partial. Uh, It was incomplete. So Priscilla and Aquila, disciples themselves of Paul, pulled him aside and taught him the way of the Lord more accurately. And then eventually, after receiving letters from, we assume, Priscilla and Aquila and others, was sent on his way to Corinth to continue to do ministry there, where he was very effective. And it happened, verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he he found some disciples. So effectively or essentially, Paul and Apollos trade locations. Paul going to Ephesus, Apollos going to Corinth, and of course God arranged it to be so. Paul would say to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Paul saw Apollos as a fellow worker with one another for God. So Apollos goes to Corinth and and Paul goes to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a magnificent city. Three great highways converged there. It had coastal access. It was the trade center of Asia Minor. It was also a politically great city. The de facto capital of that province, the Roman governor, resided there. And it was known as a free city and that it was self-governed with its own Senate. And it was also a religiously great city in the sense that they had were the center of worship to the fertility god Diana or Artemis. And the temple to Artemis is one of the wonders of the ancient world. And there were thousands of priests and priestesses who were involved in serving her through cult prostitution. So they were a very religiously involved community. Paul goes there and he found some disciples. He said to them in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now this question from Paul is a fascinating question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Apparently, there was something about this group of disciples, as they're called in verse 1, that struck Paul as as different. Now, 
Paul, of course, is the one who taught us that when we become believers, the Holy Spirit comes and seals us and comes to reside within us. Second Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that when you become a believer, God puts his seal on you and gives you his spirit in your heart as a guarantee. Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14 reiterates the same truth that you were, when you believed in him, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Yes, as Jesus said, we are born again and we are born of the Spirit when we believe upon him. So Paul is not asking the question, when you became a Christian, did the Holy Spirit come to live inside of you? No, he knew full well that the Spirit began to dwell in a believer at conversion. But he saw something about these believers that made him think that they had not yet had the Holy Spirit come upon them for works of ministry. So the gifts of the Spirit, the empowering enablement of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said to the disciples, he will be in you, but wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And when he does, you'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So there's a difference in Paul's schema, I think, of between the Spirit dwelling in a believer at conversion and a, the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer for ministry, power, and strength. And I think that was what he did not see evidence of there in Ephesus. And this might strike us as amazing to consider a twofold ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that he would become a seal upon us and inside of us, living within us, but not yet pour out his gifts upon us for the work of ministry until we consider that that was actually the flow of life for Jesus and for the disciples. Jesus, of course, had a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, at his baptism, the Spirit came upon him him and he was driven out into the wilderness and after the spirit was upon him he actually quoted there in Luke chapter 4 from the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth that the spirit of the Lord is upon me so prior to that moment the spirit had not descended upon Jesus did that mean that he was without the holy spirit no it's just that there came a moment where the Spirit came upon him, empowering him for the work of ministry, for the work that he'd do all throughout Israel. And the same, of course, is true for the first disciples, the early church. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive now the Holy Spirit. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. They waited for 10 days in prayer, and the Holy Spirit then was poured out upon them empowering them for the work of ministry. And here, the disciples in Ephesus, I think Paul is wondering, is that what's going on here? There's something missing. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they said, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay, so now he's coming to learn that their understanding is partial. And so he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So apparently, this is part of the reason why we needed to hear about Apollos. Because Apollos had only previously known of the ministry of John the Baptist. And the same is true here for these disciples in Ephesus. Uh, They'd heard a little bit of Jesus, but just what John the Baptist would have told his disciples about Jesus. And John had been very popular. And now we see that his popularity had spread all the way through different Jewish believers to Ephesus. And so they needed a fuller revelation. And so Paul gave it to them, explaining to them about the Jesus that John prophesied of. And as he explained it to them, then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, John's baptism was one of repentance, you know, trying to be washed and cleansed from your sin. But this baptism was one of salvation. You know, we have been saved. We have been washed. So we are going to be baptized as a way to identify with the Lord. So one of identification rather than one of repentance. Then he, after they were baptized, laid hands on them. And that's when the Holy Spirit then came upon them or came on them and gave them different gifts like tongues and prophecy in that moment. So for us, of course, we want to have the Holy Spirit operating in our lives and upon our lives in powerful ways. And so the first believers in the church in Ephesus are a great example for us and might help us to be able to say, you know, I want to make sure that I not only believe in the gospel message, but that my heart has been opened up to the power of the Holy Spirit working through my life. Now, There were 12 in all, it says there, or about 12 in all in verse 7. And then the next verse, verse 8 says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul did something very strategic here in this moment. You know, for three months he spoke there in the synagogue, which was his public, you know, an initial thing that he would do in these different towns to the Jew first and also to the Greek is what he wrote in Romans chapter 1. But when a stubbornness and unbelief came upon the Jewish people that he was ministering to, he withdrew and took those disciples and then every day reasoned in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, I think there's one manuscript that tells us that he rented the hall of Tyrannus. And likely what was happening is that in the afternoons when there would be a customary sort of afternoon break or siesta, Paul would rent the school and for a few hours be able to teach and explain the word of God. So he was there every day reasoning and something beautiful happened. This continued for two years. 
Now, two years might not sound like a lot in the church world or ministry world, but when you consider Paul's ministry life, two years was an incredible amount of time. It was the longest place that he'd ever decided to go in ministry. So for two years, he's there in the school reasoning every day. And after two years, it says all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, when it talks about Asia, it's talking about Asia Minor. So the same cities that when you read Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters there, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Also Colossae, Hierapolis, they were also part of that region there in Asia Minor. All of Asia heard the gospel as Paul sat there every day in the Hall of Tyrannus teaching and reasoning. I think it was here that Paul discovered a new ministry method. He actually wrote to the Ephesians later on and said that God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. I think that he discovered that there was this beautiful new style of ministry, that he was not going to have to go himself to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Hierapolis, but that he would be able to stay in Ephesus teaching and that people who heard and were built up, they themselves as Christians would be equipped for the work of the ministry to go out and do the declaring themselves. And I think that this was a powerful moment in Paul's life and in Paul's ministry. And the church in Ephesus, of course, became a powerhouse, dynamic church and fellowship. Paul ministered there for a very long time. Timothy ministered there for a very long time. Traditionally, John, the apostle, ministered there for a very long time. Priscilla and Aquila ministered there for a very long time. So they were a church that had experienced great teaching, great leadership, great Christian influence. And so they became a very powerful church in a very short period of time. Now, while Paul was doing all of this, he also was ministering to the church in Corinth via written letter. Uh, One letter that we don't have any longer. It wasn't a divinely inspired, meant to be in the Bible letter, but just some correspondence that he gave to them. But then 1 Corinthians was also written uh, here from Ephesus. And it's possible as well that there was a moment where Paul took a brief break from his ministry in Ephesus to go to Corinth and visit the believers there. And it was apparently an unfortunate trip. It didn't go all that well. But Paul here for a couple of years is just pouring into that region. And verse 11 God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So uh, Luke records here that they were extraordinary miracles uh, as opposed to the more normal miracles, I suppose. But, you know, they were extraordinary in that you know, handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin. They were being taken away to the sick and people were being healed and evil spirits were coming out of them. This was just a, an, an absolutely powerful, even though miracles are not normal for if there had ever been a miracle that had become normative, these were not normal 
miracles that were being done through Paul. And it's possible that these were appropriate ways for God to move in Ephesus. They were, after all, home to all sorts of magic and superstition. Some say that the phrase Ephesian writings had actually come to mean documents that had written out spells and magic upon them. So for God to move in this kind of way in that culture would have been greatly beneficial. Now, the power was just so amazing at that time that there was even this one instance that Luke wanted to record for us where it says in verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So apparently some people were borrowing the name Jesus and the name Paul to try to cast out demons. Uh, Again, the, the miraculous, the demonic was in full operation there in Ephesus. And so people were trying to get in on this name of Jesus and this name of Paul, but it was greatly ineffective in this particular instance. Also, verse 18, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, a huge lump of of money, probably, you know, over a million dollars. It's hard to say exactly because it's hard to know how large a piece of silver was, but this is a large amount of money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here we see this beautiful thing in that the new believers there in Ephesus, they were taking all of their magic books and arts and burning them up. They were worth a lot of money in that culture, but they were burning them up in the sight of everyone, which would lead us, of course, to ask the question, is there anything in my new life in Jesus Christ that I must burn, that I must get rid of? But as they did, the power of God was released, and Luke gives us in verse 20 his final progress report in the book of Acts when he says that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is Luke's way, as I've been mentioning, of concluding a new movement or section within this book. And that tells us now that we are entering into the final section now from this point forward in the book of Acts. It is a disproportionately long section in that it is one-third of the entire book of Acts. And great prominence is given to Paul's speeches, and there's a dominance of Uh, the mention of we. So this is the part that Luke is most heavily personally involved in. And I think part of what Paul wants to show through this next section, where we're going to have a lot of speeches from Paul to the Roman government, a lot of uproars that are caused because Christians are there, because Paul is there, but not uproars from the Christians, but from the Jews or from the Gentiles. I think what Luke is trying to show is, is that the uproars caused by Christianity were not because of Christianity during that time, but the opponents and the critics. 
uh, which is what we're going to see in the chapters to come. Now, after these events, verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So this is now going to color the rest of the book of Acts. Paul's desire to first go to Jerusalem, but then I must also see Rome. I want to go to Jerusalem, but I must also go to Rome. So that's going to be the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's journey to Jerusalem and then his journey to Rome and the way in which he'll get there. About that time, verse 23, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So now we're back to Ephesus. And, you know, Luke, again, is just clearly thinking about, look, Christianity is a legal religion to be preached throughout the Roman government. And here again is one of the reasons why. Now, verse 24, it says, For a man named Demetrius, again, there in Ephesus, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, or Diana, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, this guy is a maker of an idol to Diana, which for the Ephesians probably had begun because a meteorite that looked like a woman with many breasts had fallen from the sky. And so that's what they created, a many-breasted goddess of fertility. And clearly, this man, Demetrius, a silversmith, his motivation for this long speech is all a monetary motivation. He is being opposed not for religious reasons, but for monetary reasons. The same reason that the Gentiles opposed him in Philippi when he cast a demon out of the fortune-telling girl. Now, when they heard this, verse 28, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So, they got together, they started chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They actually grabbed some of Paul's travel companions into this massive theater there in Ephesus that was capable of seating 25,000 people. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, those are rulers of Asia, who were friends of Paul, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So no surprise, Paul wanted to actually go in among the crowd. He saw this as a great opportunity. Thousands of people gathered together all in one venue. He's got the acoustics, the theater. He just couldn't wait to go in. But they wouldn't let him go in. They said, Paul, you're going to die if you go there. 
Now some cried out one thing, some another, verse 32, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Luke is demonstrating for us this mob mentality that had come over the Ephesians. And when the town clerk, verse 35, or the mayor, had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. That was the big danger, of course, was that Rome would notice you and a riot that had happened in your town, especially if there was no cause of it. And when he had said these things, apparently it was effective because he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar had ceased, verse 1 of chapter 20, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So again, where Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea are located. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So apparently, as you put it all together, Second Corinthians 2 seems to indicate that Paul went to Troas first, to try to preach, but his heart was grieved and he wanted to go to Macedonia because Titus was not there yet in Troas to meet with him. So there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So it was during this time uh, in Achaia that many think that Paul wrote Romans and Second Corinthians. So a very fruitful time in his life. But again, Luke is just breezing through this portion. And Sopater, verse 4, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from them after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So all of these men were probably there because Paul had, we learned from the epistles, been collecting a financial gift for the church in Jerusalem. And they were there to help collect the gift and, and uh, oversee it as they went to Jerusalem. And of course, Luke now is rejoined them. He was left in Philippi in chapter 16. But here he says that uh, he's using the us, we language once again. On the first day of the week, verse 7, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So there he is in Troas. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. So on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, and so many have said that this is the clearest verse in the New Testament, which indicates that Sunday had become the normal meeting day of the early church. 
And interestingly enough for them, probably because many of them worked during the day, they gathered together on Sunday night. And Paul was teaching and preaching to them for a very long time. It says he prolonged his speech until midnight. All these lamps were burning. And a young man, verse 9, named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. This is very similar to Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. You know, getting over, leaning over, throwing himself upon this young dead man. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So, again, the power of God upon Paul's life. You might remember that Earlier in the book of Acts, there was a moment where miraculous things were happening through Peter and even Tabitha being raised back to life. And that happened before he went to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Here in the middle of his third missionary journey, Paul is also experiencing the great power of God upon his life before he goes to Jerusalem before he ministers to the Ephesian elders. So what flows from his life after this point, we can trust God's hand is upon him. But, verse 13, going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Apparently, Paul had wanted to do some of the traveling by himself on foot, and we only assume that this was for the purpose of prayer and preparation, seeking the Lord. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He knew that if he stopped in Ephesus... Uh, He would be delayed because he had so many connections with so many people there. So he stopped on the island of Miletus, and that is where we'll break for today. But where we'll pick it up next time is Paul speaking on the island of Miletus to the Ephesian pastors, and it's one of his most beautiful teachings. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.